Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Every time I went to the checkpoint, you know, I always seen that sign that said uh, uh, smuggling illegal aliens is a, is a felony. So every time I seen that sign, I would always, I cringe a little bit, but I wouldn't get too nervous. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, the story of a U.S. citizen who helped smuggle migrant workers into the country. For decades now, the U.S. government has tried and failed to hold back the crush of immigrants crossing the southern border into the U.S. Some are seeking asylum from violence in their home countries. Many more are hoping to find work and a path out of poverty. Tens of thousands are able to evade detection because they pay so-called coyotes. Those are the guides who know the illicit routes into the country. Once across, they've still got to get past highway border patrol checkpoints. And that's where a largely hidden workforce comes in. People in the U.S., many of them U.S. citizens who are themselves struggling to stay afloat, are recruited by smugglers to transport people who are hidden in vehicles. One of them was Dennis Wilson, who you heard at the top just now. My colleague Julia Love went to Texas to report for Bloomberg Businessweek about this underground industry and about the consequences for people like Dennis Wilson and others who break the law and get caught. Julia, with so much attention on the border with Mexico, it's become more difficult to get across. What's the most common way people do it these days? So for this story, I have been focusing on the Rio Grande Valley. There's many different ways to cross the border, but in the Rio Grande Valley, the border is the river. And so migrants generally cross the river on small inflatable rafts. I've actually, um, you know, witnessed these crossings on a ride along with um, Border Patrol and they, you know, will sort of board a raft with a handful of other migrants and sort of raft across the river. So they cross the river in boats and then they are ferried by the smuggling networks into a system of stash houses because although they've made it onto U.S. soil, um, there are still more hurdles to clear. We'll come back to those hurdles in a bit. But first, I asked Julia to describe what it takes for migrants just to get into one of those boats. 
Each journey is a little bit different, but oftentimes migrants make contact with smugglers when they are still in their home countries before they depart. They make their way through through the Americas, through Central America, through Mexico, and then when they reach the U.S.-Mexico border, that's um, you know one of the most complicated parts of the journey. Law enforcement sources tell me that they usually don't make that it across the Rio Grande, the the river border without working with a coyote because they generally have to make a payment to the cartel in order to cross. But by the time that they've made it to Mexico, advocates say that generally migrants have connected with coyotes in part because Mexico is just such a dangerous place for migrants and refugees. And why is that? The cartels just have a stranglehold on Mexico and they've diversified their business far beyond drugs. Um, They see that there's a lot of money to be made in moving migrants and they want a piece of that. And so they have really preyed on migrants. They frequently kidnap them, extort them. It's an incredibly dangerous environment for migrants. And so for some, traveling with a coyote gives them, you know, some semblance of safety. But certainly by the time they reach the U.S.-Mexico border, that is a territory that the Mexican drug cartels just monitor so closely that if they're going to make it across, they will have to make uh, a payment for the rite of passage. And the smoothest way to do that is with a coyote that has a relationship with the cartel. So you mentioned a payment, and this becomes a big thing because there's payments at kind of every stop of the way, what kind of money are we talking about? These are obviously people who don't have a lot. The amount that migrants pay really depends on um, how far they're traveling, where they're departing from. The International Organization for Migration told us that, you know, migrants from Central America might pay, I believe it was five to $10,000. And then migrants departing from Ecuador might pay $15,000 to $20,000. And then for extracontinental migrants, those traveling from Africa or Asia, they're commonly spending north of $40,000 for the journey. And Julia, you're right that once they're across the border, that's when they encounter this whole other set of hurdles on the U.S. side. Is that right? Yes. So they cross the river in boats and then they are ferried by the smuggling networks into a system of stash houses because although they've made it onto U.S. soil, um, there are still more hurdles to clear because the U.S. government has a big system of checkpoints that are located, um, you know, 60, 70 miles north of the border where they conduct traffic stops to scan passing cars to see if they have migrants on board. In her story, Julia writes that this is where the coyotes or smugglers on the U.S. side come in. The Border Patrol can't stop and inspect every vehicle that passes through the checkpoints. So they look for vehicles and drivers that seem out of the ordinary. To minimize that suspicion, the smugglers often recruit Americans who they believe border agents will wave through. I'd say from the cases I've seen, they're often um, transported in small groups from the river to a stash house. And then once they're in that stash house, they wait. They wait until it's their turn to be gathered up into a group and taken across the checkpoint. And sometimes this happens in, you know, a few people in the trunk of a car. And other times it's a much larger group in a trailer. 
the American coyotes are certainly part of a system that has been influenced by the cartel along the way. Because those checkpoints extend so far into the United States, there's a real need for a labor force of um, you know, people on U.S. soil, often U.S. citizens, to sort of operate that last leg of the journey. And uh, from the cases that I've reviewed, sometimes people hear about these opportunities on social media. They might see a post, um, you know, hey, reach out to me if you need a few thousand dollars. Other times they hear about the jobs through friends of friends. But um, it, it seems like the smuggling networks are always interested in deepening the bunch of people that they have to do these jobs. Julia's reporting focuses on the story of Dennis Wilson. He's a Texan who was recruited to drive migrants across the checkpoints. He spoke to me recently about how he got into this kind of work back in 2017. Well, it all started, I was panhandling money at a, at a local gas station close to where I live at. Two gentlemen approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in, in moving some farm equipment. I was kind of panhandling money to, you know, just support my habit and and uh, my living arrangements where I was staying at. And these two gentlemen pulled up. One offered me three dollars. Another one offered me two dollars. And then they both they motioned me over into their vehicle and asked me if I'd be interested in making a hundred dollars a day. And I had told them that I I could make that in a couple hours where I was at. Just panhandling. Panhandling. And then they asked me if I would be interested. I told them, no, I could make, you know, I'd make that in a couple hours. Well, then they had asked me if I was I was interested in making $500 a day. I said, well, that would take me about two days, you know, to come up with that kind of money. Then they asked me about making $1,000 a day, and I jumped on it real quick. Uh, that was $1,000 a day, which is too much to believe. The men told him to make that money, all he had to do was drive a hay baler from one Texas town to another. A hay baler makes those big round bales you see in fields by the highway. It's a big machine that's pulled behind a truck. If Dennis was wary, he didn't ask why that job was worth quite so much money. He took them up on the offer. They picked me up, they drove me from here to Edinburgh, Texas which is on the, on the United States side of the Rio Grande Valley. They put me up in a hotel room for a couple of days. And then we set out one morning about 4.30 in the morning. And I had to drive that, pull that hay baler that across the checkpoint in Falfurius. The checkpoint, the Border Patrol set up their check station. And they asked you if you were a, you were a United States citizen and if you were, they passed, they pulled you on through. There was no physical search. Thank God there wasn't no physical search that morning because going towards Houston, uh, there was a piece of metal flap that was flapping in the wind. So when I pulled over on the side of the road in a little bitty town called Burklair, Texas, which is a, a speed trap for DPS, like to sit in there and catch speeders, and I climbed up on, I got out of the vehicle, climbed up on top to fix that flap. And I looked down inside and there were people inside. I had 10 illegal immigrants inside that hay baler. Did you know that there were people in that hay baler when you set off on the drive? No, I did not. 
but this particular hay baler didn't have no no inner workings because they had taken all the inner workings out of it. There was ten people inside one of them. That one that you could put ten people inside of one. Dennis, what went through your mind when you looked into that hay baler and saw people? I was devastated. I was extremely devastated. Our story continues after the break. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You heard Dennis say he was devastated when he found out there were people hidden inside the hay baler he was driving. So he confronted one of the men who recruited him. I called them on the phone and I told them, what are y'all trying to do to me? What am I, why am I hauling people? The, they didn't have nothing to say at that moment. I just kept driving. When he got to his destination, the men handed him more than double the $1,000 he'd been promised. And in the months that followed, Dennis continued to take driving jobs, hauling more and more people and making a lot of money. Uh, I didn't do it just for the money. Um, I, I did for the money for the longest part because I am, I'm an addict in recovery. Uh, when I say addict in recovery, I was a crystal meth user for many years. Uh, and that's, and the money's, the money was there and it was, it, even though it wasn't legitimate money, it, suppl- it supported my drug habit. And so each time you made the drive, after that first time, you knew there were people. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I knew there were people. When you approached those checkpoints, what went through your mind? I kept telling myself every time I drove through, you know, this is, this is, a, this is a felony. This can get, get me in a lot of trouble. I didn't look at it like that then. I was more, I was more into what, what Dennis wanted to do not the consequences behind it. I was looking for my next fix. Julia says this is a pretty common strategy for the smuggling network recruiters. Find vulnerable people who need the money and offer them a lot of it. 
and at least at first, not let on what it's for. These parts of Southern Texas are some of the poorest counties in the state. There's a lot of people in really desperate need. And for people who are, you know, working minimum wage jobs or perhaps unemployed like Dennis, it can be very tempting when you have the chance to make a few thousand dollars for a day's work. And if they're stopping people at checkpoints, why don't they just discover them all the time? How is it that they're able to evade the checkpoints? There are just so many cars passing through the checkpoint each day that it would simply be impractical for the government to stop and search everyone. And so many cars do make it through. One thing that really has stood out to me is just the number of prosecutions and how they have increased over the years. Last year, according to some statistics from a research institute at Syracuse University, there were nearly 6,000 of these prosecutions, a record number. And these are coyotes who were prosecuted? These are people who are being prosecuted for human smuggling. Um, That's generally driving migrants to the checkpoints or perhaps running a stash house where they stay in the United States. They're taking on a, a great amount of risk for that payday. Early one morning in 2019, Dennis's luck ran out. He told me the story of the day he got caught. And most of the time, it was like 4.30, between 4.30 and and 5.30 in the morning when I went through, because shift changed. They don't search all the vehicles at that time of the morning. So at 6 o'clock when shift changed, that's when they bring in the dogs and stuff like that. There wasn't no dogs at night or in the early morning hours. And they didn't come out at all when it rained. You were doing the drive as you'd done before, but it turned out differently at the checkpoint. What happened? Well, I I got to the checkpoint like at 6 o'clock on the morning that I got arrested. I I pulled up to the checkpoint. Uh, The officer said he looked in my direction. I looked nervous to him. And... uh, the, the other officer that was there, he had a dog, and the dog's name was Weston, I think was his name. And they said the dog alerted the other man that there were uh, there was something in the in the back of the RV. I, I started moving them in RVs after I graduated from moving using the hay baler. Why did you switch to RVs? Because I could get more people in there. The officer went to the door of the RV, opened the door, and he said, oh, my God, you need to pull. He said, he motioned me up. You need to pull in the secondary lane. And they came over there, and they said, you had 50 people inside that RV. But there was nothing like endangerment. They weren't endangered by any, by, in any means. I mean, they had clean clothes on. They had food to eat. And they had water to drink. And it was a nice atmosphere inside that RV. It was, I mean, it was clean. Uh, I was immediately arrested, taken in, into the Border Patrol station. And I was interrogated, briefed upon what was going on. And what did you do? Uh, I told the truth. I told exactly what I knew. You know, you don't have to do this. You, have to, you don't have to say nothing. You can wait till you have attorney present. I said, no, I'm willing to speak. I was tired of living that life. We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Dennis, were you relieved at all that you'd been caught? Yes, yes, I'd been very relieved. Why is that? Because I've been a drug I've been a drug addict for the last fifty years. So they asked you about what you've been doing and you told them the whole story? Yes, sir. Dennis was sentenced to fifty two months in federal prison. I got into a a, a residential drug drug program while I was in prison. I got out 18 months early. I went to a halfway house. I'm a free man right now. I mean, I'm I'm still on paper. I, I still have a probation office. I'm on probation for the next two, two years. When you look back at the everything you went through, would you do it again? No, not just no, but hell no. Uh, it, it took three and a half years of my life away from me. Dennis, you've seen the border problem close up from a point of view not many people have. If you were in charge, how would you fix it? I'm not a political man by any means. I don't like our president. Uh, I just, but when when he opened the borders up, I figured that was a way for some, that was a way for them to get a little bit further in life. Well, the wall is no solution because you build a wall, they're just going to either dig dig under it or climb over it. Now, they want asylum in the United States, give it to them. Mexico, Mexican citizens, they want asylum here because they have a their 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 country's in poverty. Give it to them. Dennis Wilson, thank you for talking with me today. You're quite welcome. Dennis Wilson is just one of thousands of people who have been prosecuted for taking part in smuggling migrants across the border. So what is the U.S. government doing to try to discourage people from taking on this kind of work? So this prosecution of 
human smugglers has really been a priority in both the Trump and Biden administrations. Um, prostitutions have continued to rise under under Biden. They recently announced a new joint task force alpha that is dedicated to prostituting these crimes and has announced the dismantling of a pretty big smuggling ring. But there's different schools of thought. The, the government only has so many resources. And I've talked to some who think that the government would do well to focus on the bigger cases that help them go higher up the chain and target the people who are really running these networks. Others feel that it's important to send a message of deterrence and prosecute even the low-level offenders so that the message is out there that you will face consequences if you if you do this work. From the ones who I have interviewed, most do know that it is a crime. There is a, a sign on Highway 281, you know, advising them that it's a felony to do so. But I think that for most of them, they are just so sort of preoccupied with the desperation of their own lives that they feel that it's a necessary risk that they're undertaking. And then they also do feel that they are helping someone in need. And so I think it's that combination that helps them justify the risk they take. Julia Love, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. You can read more of Julia Love's reporting at Bloomberg.com. Thank you for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Katherine Fink. Our producer is Rebecca Chasson, and our associate producer is Sam Gebauer. Raphael M. Seeley is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. Have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.